Today we're going to attempt to answer a question. And the question is this, is Jesus the only way? And we are in a study of the book of Acts, and today we will be in Acts chapter 4, but first we're going to do a little review. There was a, a woman that was up in northern Thailand, and she was at a Buddhist lantern ceremony. She writes, I'm surrounded by thousands of suspended paper lanterns that look like glowing jellyfish in a black ocean. I reach out and touch one. It bounces off me, awaiting its ascent heavenward. Fireworks explode overhead. Green, red, and blue sparklers provide a magical backdrop as the golden dots begin to float into the distance. It's easy to get swept up in the magic and beauty of the moment, forgetting the real meaning, releasing one's sin. Behind this northern Thailand festival called Yip Heng, a Thai woman standing next to me, Som Mok Jai, says that this is the one time of year that she feels light and beautiful from the inside out. The 48-year-old mother of two has been practicing Buddhism her entire life and never misses this November full moon ceremony. She literally counts down the months, then days, until she can release her sins through these traditional lanterns. Mukjai spends most of the year making merit or doing good works for her various sins and wrongdoings. She takes food to the monks, but feeding the orphans is where she really finds the most joy. You can never do enough merit, Mukjai says, as she picks up a lantern for herself and one for me, the author writes. I thank her for the gift and explain that I don't need it. My God already sacrificed for my sins. She nods, not really interested, and continues with the task at hand, preparing the lantern for launch. I release lanterns just enough for my sin, Mukjai assures me, then explains that as the lanterns float higher and higher, she feels lighter and lighter. I do not do too many, just enough for the year, she says. Lanterns all around us begin standing straight up. It's time for another mass release. Mukjai's lantern is ready. She places my hand on the bamboo frame to feel its gentle tug. It's ready to ascend. She slowly releases the balloon. We watch the beautiful lantern rise lazily, joining thousands of others in flight. They move as one in the dark sky, drifting higher and higher. When a wind current whisks the glowing mass away, we are left standing there, engulfed in darkness and empty-handed. I still feel heavy, Mukjai sighs. One is not enough. She bends down, fumbles in the dark, searching for another lantern. So we're going to ask the question, is one offering enough? Is one man's payment for sin enough? Is one person's offer of salvation enough? Is Jesus enough? Is there any other way? Now, I'll just be honest with you. If emotion and human wishes are a correct guide, we would say that 
there's probably many ways of salvation. As long as you're sincere and you're a good person, it really doesn't matter what you believe or who you believe in. But aren't you glad that emotion and human wishes aren't our guide? (laughs) Because we'd be all over the place like those lanterns. And I know there's a lot of sincere Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and even Christians. But is there one way or are there many ways? And we're going we're gonna to discuss that. We're going to read about that from the scriptures. And how do we know the scriptures are true? Well, they prove themselves over and over with prophecy and the very resurrection of Jesus himself settles it for me that this is God's word. And so let's go to God's word and let's, what, let's see what he has to say about paths to salvation. Now, do you remember in our study of the book of Acts, we've basically gotten through three chapters. And it's been the birth of the church. And, and most recently in chapter three, we've been reading about Peter and John had gone to the temple to pray. They still loved the temple. It wasn't, you know, God's presence hadn't been in the temple for years. The Ark of the Covenant had been missing for years. Uh, But Jesus went to the temple, and they went to the temple, and they went there to pray, and, and that wasn't bad. It was a good thing. But as they came in, one of the gates called Beautiful, there was a lame man who wasn't beautiful. He probably was shriveled up and, and probably dirty in rags, and he asked for he asked for a donation. And they said to him, they turned and they looked, and they said, silver and gold, we have none but we do have something. And in the name of Jesus, they said, rise up and walk. And he didn't just rise up slowly. He leapt up and he was leaping and jumping and praising God. I mean, can you imagine your whole life, your whole life, you've not been able to walk and all of a sudden, now you can, now you can. Well, that caused a stir there on the temple. And there they were standing on the Temple Mount, on the southern part of the Temple Mount, where a portico had been built called Solomon's Porch. Today, it is probably near where Al-Aqsa Mosque stands. And now, as this man is, uh, uh, has been healed, and he's causing a, a, a ruckus. And so... Peter takes this opportunity to speak. And don't you love taking opportunities? And this happened, I don't know how many times in our trip to Washington, D.C. to support Israel. And people were just coming up to us one after the other, just thanking us. And and we were giving them in grace cards and saying, we do a lot of filming in Israel. My sister was going home on a bus with Jewish people to Akron. And uh, they were sitting next to a Jewish couple that said they watch In Grace. And they've seen In Grace's Shiloh episodes and were so excited about it. So we try to minister to people when we have those opportunities. And so Peter has this opportunity. I mean, God did this miracle. There's this man now healed and, and now people are starting to assemble. And he starts to speak and he starts to preach. And in Acts 3, the second half of the chapter, we read about some of the things he said. Now, he can say things that we can't say. He told the people that they had crucified the prince of life. The prince of life. What a beautiful name for Jesus. The prince of life. 
And by the way, uh, many over the centuries have accused the Jewish people of killing Jesus. And certainly they went along with it. The leadership, I think, was was mostly guilty, uh, the, the religious leadership, so they could hold on to their power and their, and their uh, money. Uh, and Jesus was a threat to that. But the people went along, and they chose Barabbas, a murderer, and he pointed that out in the sermon. But Jesus didn't die because he was taken, because he, he, no one can kill God, but he was a willing sacrifice, and so therefore, we're, any sinner, and if you're a sinner, you're guilty of the death of Jesus, Okay. So it's not the Jews that killed Jesus. It really wasn't the Romans that killed Jesus. It was, it was me, okay? But Peter was accurate when he said that they had crucified the Prince of Life. And then he brought up, remember last time we talked about, he brought up Moses and there's a prediction Moses made that there's one coming like him. And we looked at all the comparisons of how the Messiah would be like Moses and Jesus fits in so many ways. Here's a couple. Remember, uh, both had been born during a time of an edict to kill baby boys that happened in, in Egypt with Moses. And that happened, of course, in Bethlehem with Jesus. Uh, both left positions of royalty and wealth to serve, right? Moses and Jesus. And then both had come up from Egypt to save people. And so, and, and there are many, many comparisons. And Jesus fits the bill exactly to be a prophet like Moses, as that was one of the prophecies. And then right after Peter, or after Peter says that, he says at the, the, near the end of chapter three of Acts, he says that the prophets from Samuel on predicted these days. So you might wonder, okay, what are those predictions that we find in the Hebrew scriptures about the Messiah? I've given you some here. And these are not exhaustive, but these are some of the, the highlights. These are some of the, the ones. And uh, let's just look at them real quickly. And, and you all know this, but you, if, you can, if you can have a few of these, and if you're talking to someone that's Jewish, just say, hey, let's, let's go through the Hebrew Scriptures, and, and this will help you look if you're looking for the Messiah. Um, in Psalm 16, in verses 8 through 11, it says that the Messiah would be resurrected. In Psalm 22, in Zechariah 12, 10, the Messiah would be forsaken and pierced. In Isaiah 7, 14, the Hebrew prophet said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And, and there's some debate on, was that a young woman or is that a virgin virgin? And I, I think there's lots of evidence that that's virgin, someone that has not known a man. Uh, and then uh, Daniel 9, we've recently talked about that the Messiah would come exactly 483 years after the Babylonian return. So if you're Jewish, all you have to do is look at that Babylonian return and look at 483 years. And around that time, there's going to be someone that fits the rest of these prophecies. And so if we look in the first century, I wonder if we see anyone that fits the rest of these prophecies. Well, of course we do. Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 talk about Messiah being a suffering servant. I think that's where a lot of people missed it and miss it today. They can't imagine how God would suffer, how the Messiah would suffer. But he came actually first to suffer, uh, came in on a donkey. And that's actually one of the, the predictions, Zechariah 9.9. But he came to suffer to bear our sins, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. And then in Psalm 2, as we just recently heard from our uh, Vice President of Dayspring Bible College and Seminary, uh, Psalm two says that he will be called this. He will be called God's son. 
Okay, so again, all of these things fit. Zechariah 11, 12 and 13 say that the Messiah will be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. So, I mean, can you imagine that all of these predictions, uh, that he would be a descendant of David, and that's in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, and other places. If we're looking at these criteria and we look in that history, that time of history, can we find someone that fits every one of those things? Absolutely we can. Okay, so in this impromptu sermon on the Temple Mount with this, this healed man as the, uh, the draw, uh, Peter's using this opportunity to remind them that this Jesus fits the prophecies exactly. So before we turn to Acts 4, let's read the last couple verses of Acts 3. Acts 3.25, Peter continues, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and this is a really important covenant. This is an unconditional covenant from God to Abraham. He didn't say, Abraham, if you do this and this and this, I'll do this. This was, I'll do this, regardless of what Abraham did. This is the unconditional promise. And in thy seed shall all the kindreds, all the people of the earth be blessed. That's an incredible promise. And you might want to know, how was that fulfilled? How has Abraham blessed the entire world? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to go to a passage to find that out. Verse 26, unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. And so the answer is right there, right? How has the whole world, uh, how has Abraham blessed the whole world? It's right here the Son of God, Jesus, his resurrection, and him being willing to do away with your iniquities. And we have an iniquity problem, don't we? We all do. We have a sin problem from the, from the Pope to Mother Teresa to Billy Graham to anybody. We all have a, a sin problem, and we can't solve it ourselves. And therefore, we need to put our faith in the one who was perfect. Uh, but the seed of Abraham blessed the whole world. That's what Paul told the the Galatians, in Galatians 3, in verse 6, it says, even as Abraham believed God. Now, I'm going to stop there for one second. Some people, and even some Jewish people, think that Abraham was justified or made declared righteous by God when he offered Isaac. Is that when Abraham believed God? No, he believed in Genesis 15, The Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted in for righteousness. That's what Galatians is quoting here. Abraham believed God. It was before he was willing to offer Isaac. He believed God. That's how any, that's how we're all saved. It's not by works. It's not by doing something. It's by believing God. Uh, He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Galatians 3, 7 says, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, so anyone else that has believed God, you're of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So we are spiritually, if you're not Jewish, you're spiritually a child of Abraham. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That he has blessed us, he's blessed everybody because everyone has the opportunity, like I have, like hopefully you have, to have received him. And that's an incredible blessing. Salvation is through the Jews, through Jesus uh, the Jew. And then we'll skip down to Galatians 3.14, that the blessing of Abraham might come 
on the Gentiles. How? Through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How? Through what? Faith. Okay? So it's really simple. Salvation is by believing, by faith. And when that happens, the blessing of Abraham is upon us because of Jesus. Now, when Peter was speaking to the Jewish people, predominantly Jewish people, I'm going to say everyone probably in that crowd was Jewish, uh, and of course he was too, um, he was speaking of salvation in two ways. Sometimes we miss this. In the, in the Christian Bible, in the New Testament, we sometimes read, especially with Jesus talking about um, salvation, it wasn't always individual salvation. Individual salvation is important. It's very important for the individual. But sometimes he was talking about the national salvation of Israel. Salvation from the Gentile oppression. Salvation from her enemies. And I believe that as Peter was giving this sermon, I think he was alluding to both. Now, national salvation starts with individual salvation. The individual person believing and everyone doing that. And we do see the Bible predicting that Israel will one day nationally receive Jesus. Zechariah predicts this in 1210. I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his own son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. That's the national salvation of Israel when they collectively uh, recognize as a nation the Messiah that they have missed by and large. So if the nation would have accepted the Messiah when Jesus offered it or when here Peter offered it, they would have escaped a lot of the hardships and hard times that they faced over the centuries. And sadly, they have faced horrible things. And that's why I feel so compelled to stand with them in this hour now. But Peter, not, he wasn't just speaking of the national salvation, but he was speaking of individual salvation as well. Every person needs to come to a conclusion about Jesus. Every person. We can't hesitate to talk to people about this. Those who believe in him, they're saved, just as Abraham was by faith. So now the people in the crowd had a choice. Believe and receive forgiveness or reject and stay under condemnation. What were they going to do? Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, 1 says, and as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now let's stop there for a second. This group, these are the religious leaders of Israel. The Sadducees, if you don't know that, many of you probably know this, but some of you might not, were a sect within Judaism. They were the aristocrats. They were wealthy. They had power. They had, they, they really didn't care much about religion. It was more about politics, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? We have to be careful about that. But, um, they, they, the, one of their big tenets, they did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in the resurrection. 
So they came running as they're hearing Peter's got this huge crowd, and we know it's a huge crowd because uh, later we're going to read about a certain number of people that believed and, and were saved. Uh, and they, they heard the commotion. They heard the message that Peter had preached about the resurrection. We've got to preach the resurrection. Why? Because without the resurrection, we have nothing. Without Jesus rising physically and bodily, um, we don't have salvation. Okay? So it is important that we preach not only that Jesus died, but that he rose again. If he rose again, it's all true. It's all true. Okay. So... The Sadducees come running, the captain of the temple, these were the, the guards that the, the religious people um, had on staff. The priests came as Peter and John were speaking to the people, and they came upon them. Verse 2, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Boy, that really bothered them. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, therefore Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead, therefore Peter and John must have been speaking a heresy. And they laid hands on them. Now, let's just stop for a second and take this in. Jesus had predicted persecution. Now, if you're like me, you're not that excited about being persecuted, right? I mean, I don't think any of us want that. We don't want anyone to even think poorly of us or even make fun of us. But now Jesus had predicted there's going to be some hard times ahead if you are speaking for me because they took Jesus. They killed Jesus. I mean, if he is our savior and if we are following Jesus as our Lord, then why wouldn't we also suffer persecution? It's predicted. It's guaranteed. Now, again, I'm not longing for it. I'm not asking for it. But we shouldn't be afraid of that either. Because now, as Jesus had predicted it, now the hands were being laid upon Peter and John. The persecution was starting in the early church. But do you know, let me, let me point something out. As we go through our study of the book of Acts, what you're going to see is that the more the church was persecuted, the more the church grew. Why am I not afraid of times of persecution? Because I believe that no one's a fake. No one's carnal in times of persecution. I mean, why would you be a phony if you're going to have to suffer? You know, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to make you real serious about everything, right? So we find in times of persecution, the church actually exploded in growth. So that's why I'm not not wanting it, but not worried about it either. So now they've laid hands on them. They put a hold. They put them in hold until the next day. So that means, and that's in uh, Acts 4.2, uh, Acts 4.3, they, uh, they put them in jail, okay, uh, until the next day because this had happened, it says, for it, it was now even tied. So it's getting dark and, and they were going to put them in jail to the next day. How many days? did they spend in jail over the next years? And both Peter and John would be persecuted. Peter martyred, John exiled. Howbeit, verse four, many of them which heard the word, now this is really cool, believed, okay? So can you imagine two different responses in a crowd? 
you have many believing, and that's what you're hoping for as you're sharing the gospel. But then you also, at the very same time, are getting people grabbing you and dragging you off to jail. So some people believed and some people were furious about this. Now, the number of the men was about 5,000. 5,000 people get saved. Would it be worth a night in jail if 5,000 people got saved? It would be worth a year in jail, your life in jail for 5,000 people to be saved. It's so amazing. And remember in Acts 2, 3,000 people believed and were saved. And, and, and remember, it says they believed. It doesn't say that they uh, confessed all their sins. It doesn't say that they promised to stop sinning. It doesn't say that they had tears of sorrow. It said they believed and were saved. Okay, The number of them was about 5,000. 5,000. So sometimes when you witness, your witness is going to produce very different results. It's not really about the witness. It's really not even about the message, although the message needs to be a true message and a clear message. But what's important is the openness of the heart to receive the message. And let that give that to the Lord. Sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves. All we need to do is share the gospel. We don't have to be an attorney. We don't have to argue people into heaven. Now, it's good to have some answers. It's good to have, you know, if you're speaking to someone that's Jewish, know some of the Messianic prophecies. It's really helpful. You know, flip over to the passages. It, really, all you need is Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52, 53, and Psalm 22, um, a couple in Zechariah. I mean, then you've got, you've got some really uh, good things to talk to people. But don't put so much pressure on yourself because give them the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do his work on the, on the heart. But two really different responses. 5,000 believed, and then some grabbed them and threw them into jail. And by the way, these 5,000 people believed and they were instantaneously saved. But sadly, the religious leaders rejected the message and started the persecution of the Christians as Jesus had predicted. Now, let me just give you a little point right here. And this, I think, will help you. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. Whenever you experience a victory and you experience God's blessing, Expect Satan to show up, to oppose you and to silence you. Expect it, but don't ever, ever let it stop you. Now, the next day, Acts 4, 5, and it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander Boy, aren't you glad Luke is such an accurate historian? He was a physician, so you want your physicians to be accurate. Boy, he recorded all these names and details. That's what I love about the Bible. It's not vague. It's detailed, and the history is detailed, and it's verifiable. And it says, as many were of the kindred or the family of the high priest, they were gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, does, do these names sound familiar to you? Just two months earlier, it was the same gaggle that had condemned Jesus. Now, sometimes it's a little confusing when you read about Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. So some people wonder about that. Uh, it calls Annas the high priest, although Annas really at this moment technically wasn't the high priest. 
Who was the high priest at this moment? It was his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Now, you know, the Romans at this time were the ones selecting the high priest. So that tells you what kind of people they, they were, probably not real spiritual. Um, but if Caiaphas is the high priest, but his father-in-law was the high priest, guess who really is the high priest, right? Uh, one thing that my dad did when he retired, uh, he made it a point to move. And I would have loved that he would have been here but he said, you know what? I started this church. Uh, I don't want to have any problems. I don't want to have anyone wondering who the pastor is. And, and I, I didn't realize till he died how hard that was on him to move, to leave, because this was everything to him. But for the sake of the ministry, he left because sometimes it is hard to transition to a, a, new, a new leader. But uh, I think uh, Caiaphas probably wasn't the really, really the high priest. As a matter of fact, it says Annas the high priest right here. So it, it gives this list, and uh, and Luke is giving us a great description. And, and one other thing I want you to notice: this group was a powerful group. This group would have had robes, and they would have had all the pomp and ceremony of the office. And there they are in this chamber. And here comes Peter and John after spending the night in jail. Peter and John, contrast this, this group. These were fishermen. These were fishermen. And many would call them ignorant fishermen. We know they were anything but ignorant. So here's this, here's this uh, trial, this, this first persecution of the leadership of the church. And they asked this question in Acts 4.7. When they had them in the midst, they asked, this is the Jewish religious council that had been the same group two months earlier that had convicted Jesus. By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, when they're talking about what power and what name, they were the power, they were the name. So if you're doing anything religiously outside of the Sadducees, outside of Caiaphas or really Annas, you're not operating with the correct name and therefore you don't have the power to be doing what you're doing. That's what the, this was a very loaded question. And how are they going to answer this question? Well, let's read it in verse eight of Acts four. Then Peter, and I love this next line, filled with the Holy Ghost. Now you say, wait a second, I thought we were all filled with the Holy Ghost once we've believed. And in the early church, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And, and that's true. Every person that has put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, we are, we are indwelt by the Holy Ghost. We are sealed by the Holy Ghost until the day of heaven. It's a guarantee of heaven. But there's a difference by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter here is being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was controlling him in every way. I believe even his words. And uh, Peter was going to uh, continue to speak in a bold and amazing way. He was filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. And I'm going to leave that there for one second, okay? So he's, he's now speaking to this powerful body that had just crucified his, his friend, the one he had spent years with, Jesus. 
and he's going to answer filled with the Holy Ghost. There was once a, a grandma, uh, the grandma's um, granddaughter and her daughter. The three of, them toge- three of them were together and the grandma had bought the granddaughter a present. The granddaughter opens it up and it's a squirt gun. And she squeals with delight, runs over to the sink, starts filling it up. And the daughter says, Grandma, why did you get her that? Don't you remember all the, the times that you were upset when I had a squirt gun and I was squirting you and you were upset at me? The grandma says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. My, how people change. And Peter had a major change in his life. Think about this. Think about Peter not long before was afraid of a little girl denying the Lord. And now there doesn't seem to be any fear in him. And he says these powerful words in verse nine. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man. Okay, so we're, that's what they're asking him. In whose name did you heal this man? By what means is he made whole? And Peter's not going to take the credit. He's not going to say, well, it was me. I did it. It was in my name. No, he, he used the name of Jesus when he healed. He says, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel. I love the tension of this moment because they're all listening. What is he going to say? Is he going to defy us? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He just says it. He says it. And I'm sure it was that lead balloon that just fell out of the air and broke into a zillion pieces. And then he says, whom he crucified. He likes saying that. Whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. You can't argue that. This man is standing there. He's part of this trial. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. The manifestation of God's Spirit is directing Peter. In Ephesians 5, in verse 18, it says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. And a little alcohol can really make you do things you wish you hadn't done. But be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit influence you. Let the Spirit control you. And that's what was happening. Peter here. Peter here, he was at first a timid, vacillating Simon, but now, remember when Jesus changed his name to Peter, to Petros, Petros, in, uh, in Matthew sixteen eighteen, 18, uh, Jesus said, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And a lot of people think that Jesus was saying, Peter is the rock. Peter is the foundation of the church. No, 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 no. Jesus said, and he, by the way, he was standing in Caesarea Philippi with this huge rock face behind him, basically going up to the Hermon Mountains in northern Israel. It's where, where the trouble is going on right now in Lebanon. But uh, this rock face was full of niches with the Greek pantheon of God. And, and Jesus said, upon this rock, he's talking about himself. I will build my church. But Peter, Simon, is now the, the rock. And in Acts 4.11, Peter says, this is the stone which was set at naught. In other words, the, the stone that is the cornerstone is Jesus. 
they, they took them and they disposed of them. It was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head corner. So the one who had healed the cripple was the stone which the builders rejected. They, they literally tripped on the stone. The, 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 the lame man was walking. He was totally healed. But now they're tripping. They're, they're probably uh, damaging their legs on Jesus. And Jesus is the actually the cornerstone, the capstone, the resurrected Lord. Ephesians 2.20 tells us, and are built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Romans 9.33, as it is written, and Isaiah 9.33 is quoting Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah 28.16. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Another prophecy of Jesus. Jesus is the rock. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation of everything. And this is the verse of verses, okay? And we ask the question, is Jesus the only way? Can I be a Buddhist and go to heaven? Can I be a Hindu and go to heaven? Can I be whatever, okay? Baptist and go to heaven. Um, Acts 4.12 will settle this. If you really want to know the answer to this question, here's the answer. Peter said, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, God himself, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So when people say, is Jesus the only way? The answer is yes. He's the only way. Boy, that's a real stumbling stone for people, right? Because they want their way. They don't want to do it God's way. What did the angel at the birth of Jesus instruct them to do? And she shall bring forth in Matthew one twenty one a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. He is the Savior. He is the only one that can do it. When you accept his name, you accept all that it implies in the person that it is involved with. There's no other name under heaven that you can be saved. Only Jesus can save you. And my friends, I hope that you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. There was this uh, prison once that they built that uh, there was only one way in and one way out. It was a really tall box and uh, the prisoner was lowered in. And he liked it at first because he had the fresh air. He could see the birds. He could see the sun. But uh, he realized that the walls were starting to close in slowly on him. Every day, almost imperceptibly, quietly, the walls are coming in. The walls are coming in. He has only one hope of salvation, and that is up. That is God reaching down, and we are in that box, and it's closing in on us, and we have no other hope but him. He came. He's reaching down. He wants to save you. You have to put your trust in him and him alone. There's no other name. And I hope that you have received Jesus Christ by faith. He has done it all on the cross. He's paid for your sins. He's the son of God. He died in your place. He rose again and he can save you. 5,000 people believed. Now Maybe there's one here that needs to believe. One watching, one listening that needs to believe right now that Jesus died for not just the world, but for me, for my sins that Jesus paid my sin on the cross, 
I put my trust in him. And if you've done that, the Bible says you're born again. You're a new creature. And I hope that your life will reflect your faith in Jesus Christ.